The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Unseen and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive insight and stories from our team of writers. Uh, David with us as ever, as is The Athletic's uh, Adam Crafton. We're going to really go through a lot of David's weekly column this week uh, and also look at some of the other top stories from across The Athletic. covid starts the whole thing uh, which um if you're oh, listening dear. we will do it uh, yeah i we i promise there are there, there is plenty of other stuff on the way but what's quite interesting and this is the top item in your column that now with games being postponed because of covid teams might have to start being a bit more flexible with their with their fixture list well i started to get news on sunday evening while i was pulling the monday column together from speaking to a number of contacts across the industry that there was quite a bit of chaos going on behind the scenes talks were taking place at that very moment in time an idea from the premier league to move aston villa's fixture against Tottenham from wednesday night until another date postpone it because of the covid issues at Aston Villa that saw their first team squad put into isolation and that isolation continues until this Friday. They played an under-23 team and used backup staff members in the FA Cup against Liverpool on Friday. But there was always going to be a big question about fairness, balance, integrity when it came to the Premier League. Meanwhile, the Premier League proposed that in the absence of that game, if it was to be moved, uh, why don't we play the game that needs to be rescheduled between Tottenham and Fulham that was postponed because of Fulham's COVID issues uh, from the 30th of December. So there were a lot of negotiations. Aston Villa were obviously open to the idea of having more time to uh, overcome their problems. Uh, I think Tottenham were fairly flexible. Fulham were not happy because they played in the FA Cup against QPR on Saturday, went to extra time, 120 minutes, and I don't think this idea was put to Scott Parker until after that match. If he knew about it, he may well have selected different players for the QPR game if he knew his team were going to be playing on Wednesday. So that dialogue continued. We broke the story in my column on the, on Monday morning, this morning, and eventually the Premier League came to a decision. A consensus was reached. Whether it suited all parties, that's a different matter. And it's now been confirmed that uh, Aston Villa's home match against Tottenham has indeed been postponed. It's been replaced by Tottenham hosting Fulham on Wednesday night. And then Fulham's fixture that was scheduled for Friday against Chelsea, the West London derby, that has been pushed back until Saturday evening. So that's been delayed. And Aston Villa, who were meant to be playing on Saturday uh, against Everton, I think they're now playing on Sunday to give them that little bit longer. This is a messy situation and there are many who feel that we're heading to an, an inevitable break at some point, but that decision will not come from the Premier League, from the EFL, from the clubs. It will come from the government, if at all. And uh, so let's see what happens. Well, God, there are so many different threads to go with that. Inevitable break because of what is going on in society... Or an inevitable break because the rise of the, the the number of positive tests within football. Well, inevitable is an opinion in, in from people I've spoken to. the The situation in society and and London, as we've seen, is in a in a fairly critical situation, as declared by by the mayor of London. And there's a number of Premier League clubs 
in the capital. The situation in football with record cases seemingly each time the Premier League releases its test results. Rule breakers for whom the penny doesn't seem to drop. And we seem to be seeing uh, breaches of the the regulations and the protocols time after time. I think there may be a board meeting at the Premier League this week in which the guidelines, such as wearing a mask and not shaking hands, will be voted into rules. And therefore, the Premier League will be able to punish as standard, which they can't do at the moment. That is up to the clubs because these are only guidelines. Uh, so, so that could change things. But a combination of everything you say is just leading many people, uh, you know, with, with fixtures being postponed, with teams playing skeleton squads, with medical departments at breaking point, And some I've spoken to are just desperate, even if it's just a week or two, just to just to be able to breathe and try and bring a little bit more sort of decorum to the situation. Not so much get the virus under under check, but just almost get their ducks in a row and be able to rest for a moment. But that doesn't fit well with the with the schedule. We've, we, there is no real space to get these games played before the Euros. And I don't know what happens. But um, what, one thing that would help is if people stick to the rules and the guidelines and the protocols, then that's at least part of the battle being one but um yeah it's a pretty precarious road ahead uh, we're, we're on a tightrope are, are any in from the people you're talking to within the game or anybody is anybody rather talking about cancelling the euros because there are two there, there are two things with with the euros one if you didn't have it then you have a lot more room at the back end of the season and and you could allow yourself a break now domestically and and secondly, obviously, given given the current situation a, a, across Europe, as as so many people have said, having a euro having the euros that spread across the continent appears madness. Well, yeah, it does appear madness for sure. But in response to your question, the conversations I've had so far have not led to any suggestion of the euros being cancelled. I think people, especially in the Premier League, which is largely who I speak to um, I just focus on getting their matches played focusing on today and tomorrow barely a week ahead let alone months ahead UEFA have a huge amount uh, at stake with the Euros which have already been postponed once by a year unbelievable amounts of money involved in this and I don't think cancelling it or postponing it again will be even anywhere near the front of their thinking at the moment. I think even if it means exhausting these players and risking injuries and squeezing fixtures in where really they shouldn't be for for the well-being of these players and clubs and staff, then they're going to be and they're just going to have to hope that things get done in time. There will be people, Adam, who will put a different point of view here and will say, well, actually, when you look at the last round of Premier League tests, it was still a very, I know they'd increased quite a lot, but I think maybe it worked out at at 3% of all the tests that had come back positive. Not that many fixtures have been lost and already Fulham Tottenham here could be rescheduled. So as things stand... It is being managed. That will be another point of view. Yeah, for sure. And just to echo David on the Euros, I mean, I spoke to someone pretty senior close to UEFA last week and they said there is absolutely no chance that the Euros is either delayed or cancelled because the, the deal that was made last year was essentially we are prepared to put club football first to finish these league seasons, protect the television income of the clubs because we recognise the value of of the club game in order to you know to fund all the national federations 
But the deal was that the Euros this year is the backstop and, and that is not going anywhere. So yes, it will be a case of exhausting the players unless you know, it really reaches critical breaking point. So I'd very much echo David on that. Yeah, with regards to the situation in the Premier League at the moment, you, I think you're right. You know, the percentage is very low. The number of games that has actually been disrupted is very low. You know, I have a little bit of sympathy for Fulham this week just because the two games that they're going to have to play in quick succession are difficult games. But that's not really the Premier League's fault that Tottenham and Chelsea are quite good at football. Um, so... You know, I think the situation there is, you know, Fulham will say, oh, we've not had enough time for preparation. Well, they would have done most of their preparation for the Tottenham game before the original fixture anyway, in terms of from an um, analysis point of view, probably some some of the training ground preparation as well. Yeah, so I, d- I don't think that that should be too much of a challenge for them. And look, we're in a pandemic. Things are not going to be straightforward. Things are not going to be easy. Other industries are not just disrupted or rescheduled but completely eliminated at the moment and I think you know it was a bit like when Mourinho came out complaining that that fixture against Fulham was originally cancelled only four hours before the game you know I think he did an Instagram post saying yeah best league in the world rolled eyes emoji and it was like yeah you know things are going to change a little bit things are going to be a bit annoying but actually you know you're still being able to do most of the things that you would ordinarily do in your job. And every so often there's going to be a bit of disruption at the moment. And, and I think you're right on that. Although I, there is a part of me that looks at it and thinks, could could the communication be speeded up a bit? And David, you, you said that maybe the communication is where the issue is to a certain extent. So if you know that Villa, it has gone through Villa's squad and their training camp and that's closed down and they do have to isolate for... Are we at 10 days at the moment? I can't, I can't, honestly, anyway, I can't remember. But you yeah, know, they have to isolate until yeah. this Friday. Yeah, so, so you know you know last week that they're going to have to isolate till till this coming Friday. Then plans, I, I, I can kind of understand clubs maybe go, you could probably have told us Friday last week, really. Yeah, I don't know when the talk started, so I don't want to do a disservice to the Premier League who may have already been discussing this with the two clubs. I, I haven't been told about that, and if it was just in this last... 24 hours or so then that does feel a little bit late um I don't know the exact in- intricacies about players at Villa being retested and whether they could have tried to get some some negative readings that would allow players to return to training and that meant there may have been a glimmer of opportunity for the first team to be involved I'm, I'm speculating a little bit there so I, I don't want to go too much sure. further on that we also don't know what it's like to be in this position as a competition organizer and again not trying to be purposefully sympathetic but um, it's easy for us to sit and pontificate about why didn't you do this this week and why didn't you do that th- that week this is a nightmare and it's developing by the day and um and i i don't think switching a fixture around midweek you know fulham played on saturday yes it was 120 minutes they then will move friday's game on to saturday spurs those i've spoken to there think it's quite logical and they've played the most games of those mentioned clubs adam what do you think i i i think a little bit of leniency here is is permitted <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think it makes sense, and I think you know if there's a, if there's a gap in the schedule to to play a fixture at the moment, then you then then we should be taking it. Um, mm. I think on the I think on the other hand, you know, I think it, George Corkin wrote a great piece on the Athletic last night, and it was it was about just actually how uncomfortable all these dis- these discussions are because on the one hand, 
for most of us, you know, football's almost like the only thing we have to look forward to in the in the daily schedules. You're almost waiting for that two hours in the evening where you can watch a bit of football and it it you know, I think the way he wrote it was it just makes you feel something, whether it's anger or a bit of excitement for a couple of hours a day. But and on the other hand, these guys, yeah, a couple of them have broken the rules. But on the most hand, you know, for ten months or so now, most of these guys, most of these staff members have been pretty good in following the vast majority of the protocols, in limiting the number of outbreaks, in being socially responsible. You know, we know that, the, of course, you know, the media, both ourselves and um, tabloid papers as well, have been waiting for, for for footballers to really get this wrong. And even those of us who love football, we also love to dump on football as well at, at times as because it makes us feel all these different things. But I, I actually think that most players... And most clubs have been pretty efficient at following these guidelines. It is it is very weird how we lump all footballers in together in in this, isn't it? Uh, because we don't do it with media people, do we, or or journalists? You know, just because if you, if you don't live in the UK, Kay Burley is a UK news anchor. But just because Kay mm. Burley has a birthday dinner party, doesn't <laughs> doesn't doesn't then mean that or that you know Hugh Edwards gets lumped in, who's a who's another UK newscaster gets lumped in, or Gary Lineker does, or who, do you know it? But with with football, one footballer does it, or two footballers do, whatever it is. Oh my God, it's the high it's all footballers so and, and and that's you know that is a privilege of their position that they are so you know they are so we are so fascinated by them and we are, we are so taken by what they do and what they give to our lives that we're so interested by them but you know I, I was, i'll give you an example i was talking to a, a spanish coaching staff member um at a premier league club recently and he, he and his wife they live in london um they're both of their families their pa- elderly parents are back home in spain they've not seen them for 10 months now because they've been so strictly following all the different guidelines that the periods of travel didn't intercept, if you like, with when the season ended or when there's been an international break to give a window of opportunity to both isolate and see their families. That kind of story is very common now with Premier League footballers from overseas. There have been major sacrifices that these players have made. And of course, I'm not making out that footballers have made a greater sacrifice than the rest of us. But a lot of these people are going out every day when the rest of us are now staying inside and they are taking risks. They are taking risks to entertain us. So yes, of course, you know, people are making mistakes at the same time. But, you know, I think we all know of people who have made mistakes in this in this pandemic. And Pep Guardiola took a lot of criticism last week when he was talking about Benjamin Mendy and he said, yes, it was wrong what Benjamin Mendy did, but you all know someone. Yes. You all know someone yeah. who's, you know, he might have had someone round for dinner. He might have had he might have had a little gathering on New Year's Eve, and you know I think in deep down in our hearts of hearts we all know someone who's who's not been perfect during this last ten months, and I, and I do think we have to have a little bit of leeway in how we talk about you know with these young people. There is that, but there's also a bit of a recognition that a bit of leeway for a dinner party is very different to a number of players on the men's and women's side jetting off to Dubai yeah, when they course. weren't supposed to and, and claiming business reasons. I think Katie Wyatt's written a piece about the women's side on on The Athletic. And a, a point that is, is frustrating people inside and outside of football is the lack of a, adherence to the protocols. So the players from the start of the pandemic in March have been told once once project restart got going and more recently 
about hugging on celebrations, about spitting, about shaking hands, and they're still doing it rampantly, you know, and uh, we've all played football, we know we know when you score a goal you want to celebrate, but there are basics that, that are being very clearly relayed to the players and staff from their medical teams, from the Premier League, and it's going out of the window. Uh, celebrations, I, I think, is more of an instinctive thing. Spitting, have your own opinions on it. Handshaking at full time and hugs with opponents mm. is not necessary. And if they don't get themselves in order, a, a lot of the masks that are meant to be worn are down below the chin, certainly below the nose. Um, the Premier League inspectors are now going to be taking a more rigorous approach to this at training grounds, in dressing rooms. And as I said, I think the guidelines are going to become rules that the Premier League can enforce punishments on and therefore hopefully the standards will raise because the the wider society can't be told about those things and see it not being replicated in in those elite sporting environments where the industry has been allowed to continue even though they are being regularly tested and i think that will help help the, the public perception too the the celebrating's i i, I kind of think is it, well, it depends on the situation, but I was at Crawley yesterday. I mean, if if you scored as that lad did the opening yeah. goal against Crawley, which was just individual brilliance, how against a Premier League side going through what he has gone through, car crash released by two clubs, mm-hmm. Tottenham and Brentford, in the heat of the moment, yeah. it's very yeah. difficult to go. Hang on a minute. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Yeah. Don't, don't and, celebrate. And then where do you draw the line about who can I celebrate know. and who I can't? And it's the, a the, this, is, this, this is the thing, though. In, in the you know, for the last ten months, we've expect for, well for a, a large portion of the last ten months, we've expected a lot of EFL players to crack on playing without testing, yeah. traveling to games in coaches, very tight dressing rooms, then going home mm-hmm. to their families. And then because, you know, we're, all of a sudden the government's public service messaging, is public health messaging is, in, is intensified at last. They're now saying, oh, but you can't hug when, when you celebrate a goal yeah. outside. I mean, it's completely contradictory to what they've done to protect players. Um, and or you're all suddenly what, getting uh, tested on the eve of the biggest exactly. match of your mm. <laughs> yeah, career. Of course, because you're playing people from a higher league who are deemed more valuable from an economic point of view. And that's that's the reality of it. And, you know, I think this idea about, about the hugging and the spitting, I think I think it's a distraction, really, because, you know, spit, if, if you've played sports to any level, you know that sometimes you have to spit. That's that That is part of the way the human body works. And I don't think that's something that you can really ask players to control. I think the hugging thing, yeah, ideally, you know, if you, if it's the fourth goal in a 4-0 victory, you probably don't do it. But I think, you know, if you're also then expecting players to travel in coaches, be in tight dressing rooms, you, you can't you can't have all these things at the same mm-hmm. time up pitting against each other. OK, let's move on because we've done a, a sizable chunk of the pod and we haven't mentioned Arsenal yet. Um, so uh, Rob Holding <laughs> has signed a new long-term deal. He has indeed, yeah. There were recent reports that Rob Holding was in talks with Arsenal over a new contract. Those talks have now turned into him putting pen to paper recently on a new long-term deal. Um, His previous contract kept him at the Emirates Stadium until 2023, so this obviously goes beyond. A very interesting situation because it looked like Holding had slipped down the Arsenal pecking order uh, defensively over the summer. 
Uh, we revealed on The Athletic that he was close to joining Newcastle. Uh, it, it was even possible at one point that he would have travelled after the Community Shield, I think, when Arsenal won and, and um, the transfer window was sort of drawing towards the end of August. Mikel Arteta put a block on that. There were some at the club that felt the sort of overstocked central defence department and the need to sort of free up space in a bloated squad um, and give holding game time would mean a loan to Newcastle would have been sensible. Arteta had other ideas. He had no intention of letting him go. He's since played 17 games this season, including Arsenal's last 11 in the Premier League, starting them all. He's done well recently in particular. He does divide opinion among sections of the fan base and there was a mixed reaction to our story. But I think uh, he's a really popular character at Arsenal um, with potentially three central defenders leaving between January and, and the summer in David Luiz, Skodra Mustafi and Socrates out of contract as well as William Saliba who's already gone on loan. That strength in depth in the right centre-back role that Holding provides is I think really quite important to Arsenal and so yeah he'll, he'll be at the club for, for a while longer. And on the subject of English centre-halves, you've spoken to James Tarkovsky, Adam, for a piece on the site. Yeah, so we, we have a feature on The Athletic that's called My Game in My Words, where we spend around an hour with a player showing them clips um, of their own game. And, and we usually do it with flair players like Wilfred Zaha and Jack Grealish. But in this case, we did it with James Tarkovsky um, and Burnley... You know, we know that Burnley's defensive record is fantastic. They've had five clean sheets in the last nine games, except for that 5-0 defeat against Man City. I think it's three goals conceded in in eight of those games. So, you know, ahead of playing Manchester United tomorrow night, they're sort of back to what Burnley are. And he was fascinating in terms of, you know, the work that goes into the shape that Burnley have defensively, um, how tight that defence is, the body, the, the shape of his body, um, mm when he's preparing to make tackles and preparing to do recoveries, why he occupies certain spaces in the penalty area when crosses are coming in. Really interesting. And I think also, you know, one of the one of the more interesting aspects of it was listening to him, I suppose, talk about the way he's perceived as a player because he was at Brentford before under Mark Warburton, who play very expansively, played out from the back, stepped out of defence to break the press from opponents. Obviously at Burnley, he does very different things because the priority is to get thing, to get the ball forward into the two strikers, to get the ball forward quickly to give those players a chance of scoring goals. And I think obviously that's had an impact as well on his chances of getting into the England squad because Gareth Southgate wants to see defenders probably playing the same way as they'll play for their country. And you know, it then becomes a question of can you do that while you're still at Burnley? I think that's probably something that will develop over the next 18 months because his contract's up next summer as well. So you can read that on the site as well. At the moment, let's do some transfer news, David. Uh, Tottenham are interested in how many winners do Tottenham need? Uh, they're, <laughs> they're now interested in the Stuttgart winger, Nicolas Gonzalez. Well, it's interesting you mention the wingers situation at Tottenham because the only way that Spurs would be able to bring in Nico Gonzalez or anybody else is if they have some departures. So Gareth Bale's kind of separate because he was a, a standalone signing in his own right. They didn't really need that position filled. It was an opportunity. But let's see what happens with the likes of Lamella, Mora, Bergwijn. Um, and if there's any space freed up, then perhaps Tottenham would 
look to bring someone in and they have uh, held some very early discussions uh, with Gonzalez. Um, they do that with a lot of players. They're not the only ones in the mix. I think Leeds considered him over the summer. I think Juventus are looking at him now as well if they can move on. Bernadeschi, um, a number of other clubs as well. And I'm not surprised because if you look at what he's done since a disappointing first season with Stuttgart when they got relegated to Bundesliga 2, he was prolific uh, despite not playing as a striker in, in the second tier. And then since uh, they've been promoted, he's hit the ground running and Really, his stats are phenomenal in terms of goals and assists. I think it's five goals and a couple of assists in 11 appearances this season. From what I hear, it would take around 30 million euros in the summer to to prize him away from the Bundesliga club. He doesn't have a release clause in the contract he signed a while ago that it extends his terms until 2024. I think he earns around 1.5 million euros before tax, not including bonuses, so... Nothing that would put a, a club in the Premier League off. So let's see what happens. Um, it's been very quiet so far, hasn't it, this window? Yeah, yeah, it really has. And even when we're talking about Gonzalez, that's one that clubs would be looking to do for the summer, which kind of indicates that, you know, they'll see what they can do this month. The odd loan, the odd swap, um, trimming squads, letting players go very difficult times financially um, obviously more revenue streams should come on board in the summer the, the clubs will be hoping that fans will be coming back into the grounds and that they can spend and rebuild their squads properly and uh, I, I think it will be quite busy especially towards the end of the window but I don't think there'll be much money moving around in permanent transfers big money deals and yeah it's a, it's a, it's a sign of the times really um, th- th- there are lots of movements going on behind the scenes but nothing like we tend to seeing it in a summer window and uh, of course it's pandemic affected so that's a that's a big issue there's the new um, Brexit rules and the impact that that will have on on the Premier League interestingly uh, we mentioned uh, one of the players Watford have signed uh, in Monday's column Adam Leventhal talks about him well <laughs> seems that he came into the country sort of a day or so before the new Brexit regulations came into force and that allowed him some kind of settled status I don't think he's the only one to have done that and um, and so there are all sorts of complications yeah well David you say it might be quiet I think one place where it's not going to be quiet is West Brom partly because after going out of the FA Cup of the weekend Sam Allardyce was already talking about lots of players that he needs uh, to bring in uh, West Brom correspondent Steve Madeley joins us now actually let's start before we talk about players that he might bring in this story on the Athletic has garnered a lot of attention regarding the future of Mateus Pereira What's happening here? I've been told by a couple of different sources that the Mateus Pereira who kind of wowed West Brom and almost kind of seduced the West Brom fan base last season, who was happy, smiling, the centre of everything, has kind of given way this this season to a much more quiet, withdrawn Mateus Pereira. And one of the reasons for that, I'm told, n- not the only one, but one of the reasons is the ongoing contract talks, which aren't going as, as he kind of th- thought they would. I think he thought that He'd done so well last season that West Brom would almost give him what he wanted in terms of a new deal. But West, but West Brom have offered him a, a, a new contract uh, with with an extra year, so so that would be five years and some extra money on top. But their view is, well, you, he agreed a four-year permanent deal before he signed his one-year loan in 2019, which, which then kicked in when they signed him permanently last year. So West Brom's take is, well, we've agreed to the contract, contract in, in good faith, you've agreed to it, we're honouring it, so... We'll kind of give you a, a little sweetener to reflect what you did last season. The fact that your status has has risen to a certain degree, but 
but at the same time we're under no kind of pressure because we've got you tied down for four years so so why should we kind of throw lots and lots of money at, at a player who's yet to really prove himself in, in the Premier League but that's kind of potentially as, as a knock-on effect that, that you've got an unhappy star player there who, who hasn't really looked like the same player or the same character that we saw last season just what Allardyce needs <laughs> since coming mm. in and trying to trying to get some results is it is this anything to do with the change of manager well, Steve? I, I think there's so many factors playing into it without a doubt Mateus Pereira was really fond of Slaven Bilic and Slaven Bilic had had certainly mm. last season had found a way to to get the best out, out of a guy who for all for all West Brom saw this happy-go-lucky character la- last season we heard, we heard a lot of stories from from Sporting Lisbon and also, also from from Nuremberg, where, where he was on loan before, that he could be quite quite a difficult high maintenance character to manage. Slaven Bilic didn't really see any of that side of, of Pereira last season, probably because he he was flying and the team were flying and, and everything was going great. This season, it hasn't been been like that. I'm sure that the the, the change of manager hasn't gone down particularly well with with Pereira, both in terms of per- personalities that he he really liked Bilic and also the style of play is clearly going to be. Di- Going to be different under Allardyce, but at the same time, you have to say he had Billich uh, hadn't really got too much of a tune out as of in this season with this contract situation rumbling on in the background. As regards who they might bring in, then I mean I've I've seen rumours about Cenk Tosun and Mamadou Saka. Now I, I wonder whether it, I mean is that genuine or are they, are they Big Sam Allardyce's equivalents of uh, Nico Cranchar and, and Harry Redknapp? <laughs> I mean, they are that definitely, but um, I mean, but, but, I mean I'm, I'm, le- I'm led to believe that, that that there have been inquiries for, for both of those players. Equally, what we're hearing last week was that, but that, that both were fairly unlikely, uh, especially, especially Sacco, purely on on finances. I mean, I think I think his his, his weekly wages is very much in, in the six figures, which would be massively above West Brom's top earners are, are on at the mo- at the moment. And unless Palace were willing to to subsidise that that to get him out, then it would be. A, a difficult deal, deal to do, and realistically, Palace aren't too far clear of the relegation battle themselves. Why would they spend their own money helping out a relegation rival? And, and, and why would they do that deal unless it was beneficial to them in order helping them to further their own cause? Do you know who else he might be looking well, at? He, he, he's been talking for a while about about frontman, and he said that he's looking abroad. I haven't actually got, got any any names at this stage, but but then after the game at Blackpool, he, he then started talking about possibly needing two needing two frontmen, which in a situation where the club haven't got a great deal of, mo- of money to spend, you wonder if he, if he has to bring in two front men, then wh- where's he going to find the money to strengthen elsewhere? I, I mean, mm. he probably needs fullbacks. I'm, I'm, I'm led to believe he he wants fullbacks. He needs dif- a defensive midfielder. In that, the only defensive midfielder he's got is is a, a young lad called Sam Field, who's who's done okay when he's played, but he's been injured a lot and he's got very little Premier League experience. And also at cent- centre half, he, he, he's got. A combination of experienced players like Branislav Ivanovic and Kyle Bartley, who've struggled at t- times this season. I mean, Ivanovic has st- struggled full stop. And then he's got he's got a, a couple of young lads in Shemi Ajayi and Dar Roche, who've looked promising, who've, who've done well, but but are kind of inevitably naive to the way, to the ways of the Premier League with their level of experience. I mean, there, there are so many areas in, in a team where Allardyce needs to strengthen, but. He seems to be talking a lot about frontmen at the moment. At the moment, that seems to be to be the priority. So at the end of that, Steve, I've got I've got left back, right back, <laughs> centre half, defensive midfielder, and two and two strikers. So he's he's happy with his wide well, players. Well, so well, that, but and and his well, goalkeeper. He's, he's already, very money, very money. He's, 
Oh, but he's he brought Snodgrass in too. He wasn't yeah, happy with his yeah, wife. Yeah. <laughs> like, although, although Snodgrass can, can obviously play set seven positions. Yes. Sam Johnson's done well in goal. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we're kind of making li- making light of it, and you you kind of have to find humour where you can. But that's where they are. I mean, but that's what we always said. That's what we always said, Steve, didn't we? That Slavan Bilic was managing a club in the Premier League with a Championship squad. That was what was always yeah, said. And I think I think I think that I think that is, that is fair comment. Just to kind of put put the West Brom club side of it, if you put that to them, they were. They would come back and argue that it was Slavin Bilic who prioritised keep, keeping the team together from from, la, from last season. Filip Kravinovic, who did well last season but hasn't played a big part this year, did they really need another one of that kind of player? I would argue pro- probably not. The club would say that they prioritised what Slavin Bilic asked them to prioritise. But yes, I mean, the, whoever you believe is responsible for it, the upshot is, you're right, they've, they've ended up with playing the Premier League with a championship squad where... Only real. I mean, Sam Johnson has stepped up brilliantly. To, I mean, but b- better than I think a lot of us ex- expected him to. And Conor Gallagher, who's on loan from Chelsea, is a young lad who who looks kind of every inch the Premier League player. But you look look, look down the rest of the squad with, with Pereira not really stepping up so far. It's hard. It's hard to look at the squad and and, and say yeah he's a nailed on Premier League player. They just aren't. They just aren't there at the moment. That's great stuff, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Steve. Thanks very much. Uh, now, there is more in David's column uh, on uh, on various transfer stories. Uh, there's stuff on West Ham's Jared Bowen earning himself a bumper pay rise. Uh, and Stoke have made a, an approach for Rob Green. Have they? <laughs> no, they did uh, when right. they were going through a goalkeeping crisis. Right. Simon Johnson uh, with this report. And uh, I think it was politely declined from Green. Uh, I was going to say, yeah. all, the, all the pundits I work with at the moment seem to be going back into the game. It's a nightmare. I'm losing pundits <laughs> left, right and centre. Uh, True. So- and, and and every time you have him on and he's a pundit on a game, there's a goalkeeping error. So yeah, I'm not absolutely. sure it's wise for him to go back into goal himself. <laughs> uh, you first. can read, read more on all of those stories uh plus the ones we discussed uh on the athletic theathletic.com slash ornstein and chapman okay uh, let's uh, have a look at uh, another story on the athletic now one of yours adam about the situation with edison cavani he of course received this three game ban and a hundred thousand pound fine from the fa after uh, that instagram post um but it's become well i suppose you could call it a kind of international incident Adam, couldn't you? Because the Uruguayan Players Association have spoken out in defence of Cavani. Yeah, and it, I mean, the strength of feeling in Uruguay over this incident um, is really remarkable. I think, you know, we, we saw elements of it last week that where there was a statement that was made by the Uruguayan Players Association. It was then supported on social media by leading Uruguayan players, such as Diego Godin, for example. Um, and, and it all comes down to what, what has been a real essentially a clash of cultures over language. The term that was used, and I'll use it because it's been widely referenced, was uh, gracias negrito, which means if you translate it literally into English, it would mean thank you, little black man. But in the context of of Uruguay and South America, what, what the Uruguayans are arguing is that it's used very much as a term of endearment to a friend. And that's been the clash that's, that's played out within the FA and Cavani and the lawyers over the last few weeks. Now, the, the important thing to say is that Cavani accepted the charge, Manchester United accepted the charge. They say that was in the spirit of combating the broader fight against racism um, and discrimination. But they absolutely reject the idea that Cavani in any way intended to be racist or discriminatory in his comments. Um, What's now developing is that the Uruguayan Players Association are continuing to speak with lawyers, continuing to explore all available avenues to what they say is basically to defend 
Cavani against a blot on his name, um, what they argue is almost a form of defamation that he should be sanctioned as be, for, for committing a racist act in the eyes of, of the English FA. And this this will escalate this week because I believe there's a, a meeting scheduled with FIFPRO, which is the International Players Union. And I, and I think the, the broader point that they are making is that when a player goes to a foreign country and does something which would be very normal in his own country, that he shouldn't be sanctioned for doing it. Now, that brings in all sorts of societal debates about whether you should adapt to the norms of a country that you move to or whether you should be allowed to defend your own, you know, to, to, to employ your own customs mm-hmm. from your own country. It's a seriously complicated issue. I think, you know, I think there's a lot, for example, the English PFA have distanced themselves. They've not represented Cavani in this at all. They've basically taken the position that the term used does not help the battle against racism. They're supportive of the FA sanction. So there's, there's clearly a big divide here. Um, I think the point I would probably make is if you're going to impose these sanctions on players who come from abroad, then what the FA and club should do from the start is when a player moves over, have an education session relevant to their part of the world where you say these terms may be normal. Um, where you were brought up and in everyday life, but here it might get you into trouble. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably the way forward in this, rather than which, necessarily... Which, tank- I was going to say, which, to be fair, to the uh, the panel that handed down the, the ban to Cavani and the fine, their, their bigger point, if you actually move away from the, the headline of the suspension and, and the fine, their bigger point was, was probably aimed at, at United, saying... You really ought to have educated him when he signed, and and maybe if you move away of, from the individual punishment, that is the message that that clubs clubs globally ought mm. to ought to heed. Um, you know, for to, when players go to you know, players go to other countries as well. This is what we do in this culture. The, the, you know, this is this is what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and it's a difficult one because I, I, I don't think that many clubs will do this at all, to be honest, um, as things stand. I think it was an interesting point the FA raised. I, I also think it, it's probably something that should be taken away from clubs, that the clubs should probably fund themselves. But the FA, kick it out, the PFA between them should be devising, I suppose, geographically relevant education sessions because there'll be points that you could make to a player from Brazil that wouldn't be relevant to a player from Ghana, for example, right? So, and I think it's difficult as well. I think even if that education session had happened, there would still be a huge amount of bewilderment in Uruguay. You know, the guy who I spoke to from the Uruguayan Players Association was saying, there are kids and mums here who who use this term every single day in an affectionate way who are now seeing their hero branded as a racist Mm. in England and they can't get their heads around it at all. And I'm not sure, you know, to be fair, the guy I was talking to, I didn't sense a huge willingness to necessarily hear the English FA side of the argument either, to be fair, in that respect. So it's a a real clash of culture. The Uruguayans are accusing the English FA of reverse racism towards their own culture, to discriminating against... um, Uruguayan culture having a very Eurocentric point of view, world view, and how they, you know, believe that people should talk and behave. So there's clearly a real clash here. Yeah, the, the, the nub of it is the, the suspension has now been served anyway. But I think the interesting thing going forward will be one: will they actually take the legal action um, against the FA that they they are considering? And two: when they hold this meeting with FIFPRO, will there be this almost wider global? move by FIFPRO 
to ensure these education sessions take place, not only in England, but around the world, to ensure that players are protected, I suppose, against being what they may consider to be defamed or being sanctioned against mm. by not having the, the awareness of what is right and wrong in the country that they're playing in. Is it naive to think that there should be some global ruling on this now from FIFA? It's hard, though, because how how do you as FIFA... You know, you're basically asking FIFA to 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 define what what is right from a language point of yeah. view with all the different languages in the world, um, and it's a I think it's a really really difficult issue from that point of view. I think the point on Cavani though is you know he's been playing in Europe for a long time. He's not been in Uruguayan backwaters for the last fifteen years. You know he sh I think he should know really having played in France, lived in Paris. I think you know he he would have seen what happened with Luis Suarez as well. I'm not comparing those two instances because. You know, I think the one with Evra was different in the sense that Suarez was judged to have been trying to provoke Evra in that sense, whereas with, with Cavani, he was talking to a, to a friend in an affectionate way. But I'm sure Cavani would have been aware of the, the um, reaction to, to the use of that word in England. So I, I think with, a, with an experienced player, I have a little bit less sympathy um, because he's, you know, he's been around the European game for a long time. Uh, let's just end with Raheem Sterling, who has parted ways with his long-time agent, A.D. Ward. Bearing in mind, obviously, you both deal with, with a lot of agents. Do, do you think there's going to be a scramble to secure Raheem Sterling's signature now, David? This was a report by Martin Ziegler in The Times. I don't have any information on it at all myself. If Sterling is now free, um, then he'll have some decisions to make. Does he go down the Kevin De Bruyne route and just do things with a lawyer. Uh, I think Kevin De Bruyne's father is involved as well. Um, but essentially managing his own career with, with legal ex and contractual expertise. Or does he join one of the big agencies? You know, we talk of the likes of Stella, Wasserman, Base, um, and others, are, you know, globally as well. The likes of uh, George Mendes, Mino Raiola, a big player within in football now is Rock Nation, who deal more on the sort of commercial side, but they've got a football division. And, you know, we've seen a lot of the work that they've done with some very high profile players like Marcus Rashford, Romelu Lukaku and others. So I'm sure they will be scrambling. Absolutely. And um, Raheem Sterling is shown through his work on and off the pitch. What an intelligent and um, powerful uh, sort of personality and player he is but without knowing the background to this and why Raheem Sterling has done it it's hard to know what his intentions will be going forward and and, and he does seem pretty you know clear-minded and and decisive in his actions these days and uh, so I think he'll probably have a fairly clear plan yeah no I, it's, it's a really interesting one because I think you know there's probably about eight to ten major agencies or super agents now in the world and they all compete for the you know for these star names or potential star names and I think it's a fascinating area that we'll probably look at a lot more on the athletic in the future in terms of how these these major players in the game are competed for I, I, I just I actually sent that link um, of Martin Ziva's report to to a couple of significant European agents over the weekend just to see you know to ask what you know where's Raheem going or mm. were you aware of this and, and actually the few that I spoke to were all quite surprised by it. Um, it didn't seem like it was something that they were aware of massively, but they were certainly interested and were 
then trying to find out over the weekend, where's he gone? What's he doing? What's his plan? Is he just going to work with a lawyer? Can we battle for him and compete with him? Um, he's also at an age probably where, you know, he's either going to sign one more big deal with City or go for that one big move. I know there was talk in the past with Real Madrid. There was some interesting interviews he did last year with the Spanish media as well, which didn't go down particularly well at Manchester City. Um, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how Raheem goes about it. And also you know, what he does profile-wise because his profile skyrocketed when he spoke out really powerfully about racism previously. We've, we've almost seen other players overtake him from, from a social standing point of view in the last six to 12 months. Obviously, Marcus Rashford's the person that everyone's talking about now. So you wonder whether he may be looking to do more with his profile again over the next six to 12 months, um, you know, because players now are major social influencers as well. Uh, that's great. Uh, thank you, Adam. Uh, David, that was thank- packed. Thanks, it was. Adam. It was. It was. There <laughs> was a lot, a, lot a lot that we squeezed in there. All the articles that we've mentioned on today's podcast, you can read in full on The Athletic. Uh, you can subscribe for just £3.99 a month. You get all the analysis, the in-depth features from all the very best football writers around and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So to do that, just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. And I'm back on this podcast feed on Thursday alongside Matt Slater for our new podcast, The Business of Sport. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, David. Pleasure. Good luck to producer Dave on the edit. (laughs) (laughs) The Athletic.